Hello, welcome to Behind the Confidence Smile. I'm your host, Bianca Cotton, and today we are talking about breast cancer and surviving breast cancer and the journey of uncovering what it's like to live with it for a moment in time with special guest Ramona Burris. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Bianca. A pleasure. Yes, looking forward to the conversation. (laughs) Honest conversation. Oh, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get to how you discovered Mm -hmm. uh, you had breast cancer, let's go back Mm -hmm. a couple of steps. When did you learn what breast cancer was? Mm, That is a good question. Let's take it back to 1995. (laughs) I'm joking. I was about to say, okay. Elementary school, high school. High school, (laughs) high school, year I graduated. Um, But for me, breast cancer was always pink ribbons Mm. um, because that's, you know, what we saw all over media, TV, billboards, every October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I'd never had anyone in my family or my close circle who I knew had been impacted by breast cancer. So it was just one of those, oh, pink ribbons for this, blue ribbons for that. Um, I knew that, you know, there were some men who had breast cancer because you think about Mm. Richard Roundtree and now more recently Beyonce's dad. Um, So I just knew basics like, oh, it's just cancer that originates in the breast. And that was pretty much it. Wow. Did you ever learn about it in high school? Like in a health class, we did learned, they talk about it? Yeah, we learned about it from more of an epidemiology, like stats oh. of how many people in America have breast cancer. We never really saw the stats when it comes to like people of color or, you know, mm. breaking breaking it down by race and ethnicity. But it was just like, you know, this percentage of the population has a likelihood of having breast cancer. This percentage has a likelihood of prostate cancer. So oh. it was pretty much lumped all together with all the other more prominent cancers um, and discuss more in that numbers perspective and, um, you know, just basic information about what cancer is, you mm-hmm. know, just a cell that kind of just goes rogue. Um, and, and instead of going through cell death or what we call apoptosis, it begins to mutate and forms a cancer. So that was pretty much, you know, just a oh. generic definition that I'd had about cancer. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Like no personal touch to it no, at all? No, I mean, when I, I'm a pharmacist, so when I was in pharmacy school and even probably in undergrad taking some of the biology classes, we talked about therapeutic options, mm-hmm. um, but never really enough about the disease itself, just how to treat it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. We got some work to do on yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So with all of your learning and you, you are dropping terminology, so feel free to t- uh, tell the people what you do. Oh, let's see what <laughs> to you put I this do. in context. <laughs> so I, I always laugh and tell people, I'm like, I'm a drug dealer. Yes, I'm a drug dealer, <laughs> folks, um, but a legal one. So I'm a pharmacist by training, um, infect, infectious disease and oncology certified. Um, you know, I've worked for many years behind the counter in some of our neighborhood community retail stores. Um, but I transitioned recently into the world of uh, pharma. Mm-hmm. So the folks who make the drugs uh, never thought that I would be in that space from a profession. But I do have to say that my own personal healthcare journey and being an advocate and being a voice and really trying to affect change, that's what allowed my career to move from retail on the corner of happy and healthy to... <laughs> <laughs> we know that's yes, yes, to, you know, some of the big wigs, uh, um, you know, out there in the pharma who actually make the drugs. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but this this is make this makes for a very interesting health journey because you've been a, you're on that side. Mm-hmm. So 
when did you discover um, you had something going on in your body that maybe you didn't have a name for at that moment? Yeah, that's a great question. So it was I was about 34, um, so maybe 2013, and I uh, was just taking a shower, um, lathering up, and I felt a little knot in my breast, in my left breast, um, a, a lump. And to be honest with you, I was like, hmm, okay, just kind of ignored it because often throughout my, my life, um, I would have like lumps here and there in my breasts that were like cyclical with my menstrual cycle. Mm. So, you know, they would kind of come up and then they go away. And it, that had been happening since I was like 15, 14. And so I was like, okay, you know, here's another one. And I kind of like just told myself I'll watch and wait. Never had any concerns, right? Because I don't have any family history of cancer or anything. Um, but that lump stayed there for a little bit longer. And uh, it started to become a little bit painful because I'm left-handed. And um, at that time in life, I was uh, separating from my husband and was trying to, you know, be that type A career professional to ascend mm -hmm. up that ladder. And so that, too, I believe kind of contributed to the length of time that I ignored it. Mm. Um, and that's just my my honest, you know, mm -hmm. truth, because, you know, sometimes we're so busy taking care of other folks and trying yeah. to be the perfect this or that, that we don't do that self-care. Um, with the ass on our chest, with right? With the ass on our chest. Super and, mom, super woman, yes, super wife. Yes. And this is not an ode to the strong black woman because right. there's a problem with that. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong with that, that we, um, you know, be forced to have those titles. Right. Um, so. Yeah, so I had, you know, moved out the house from my husband and, um, you know, was trying to keep the kids, you know, together. I have three children. And at the time, um, I have a set of twins. They were probably eight at the time. And then their older sister was maybe 13 or so. So, you know, because I broke up the hustables. You know, I had <laughs> tried so hard, tried so hard, but I broke us up. So I was just trying to make sure they were straight. Um, again, trying to show up well on the professional side. But once that lump was consistently painful I was like okay darn let me call my doctor and so that may have been like November of 2013 um, so I called her in great relationship with this doctor she's still my primary care doctor to this day but I called her I was like yeah I got this this knot and it's hurting you know it's hard for me to count these pills at work and I can't type and I can't pick up the phone and multitask um, and she was like well girl I just saw you in July you know I don't think it's anything let's just wait mm. Now, mind you guys, like, I never was blessed with boobs all my <laughs> life. All I had wanted was a rack. <laughs> my mama got a rack. Everybody in the family got a rack. I was, you know, olive oil. I'm like, come on, God. Why? <laughs> so um, it, w it wasn't that hard for me to kind of, you know, one, feel the lump, but two, for it to kind of impede, you know, how I was um, conducting my daily activities. And so first phone call with the doctor. Okay, cool. Um, about two weeks later, it was getting a little bit more painful and, and increased the size just a little bit. So I called her back and she was like, Ramona, you're going through so much right now. You know, I, I don't want you to, you know, make a mountain out of a molehill. Just, you know, when I saw you in July, we were good. There was no concern. So let's just let's just see. You have a history of these things coming with your cycle. Let's just see. And then a week later, I called her back. I was like, look, I got to come in. Um, and, and again, it really, it was painful, but I have a high pain tolerance because mm. we're a strong black woman, right? right. But I was We like, can take it. We can take it. We can take it. But At my, least we think so. Yes. But, you know, my ancestors, the spirit, something was telling me, you know, this pain has just been here for too long. So I called it a third time. I was like, look, I got to get in. Um, and so I was like, finally able to get in to see just my primary care. So I wasn't able to see her, but I saw someone in her practice. Um, 
and, and what's troubling about that is that I appreciate the fact that she knew what was going on in my outside life. Um, but again, as a clinician, when a patient calls and, and has a complaint, they're supposed to be seen. Right. Right. So did some of that kind of seep into why it took three times for me to call for me to get in? Who knows? Mm -hmm. Was it because I'm a black woman in this large, you know, healthcare institution that maybe my voice wasn't important enough to be seen because, you know, she didn't have any availability? I don't know. But and her and I, we, we tried to have conversations about it because, again, she's still my doctor to this day. But it's just, you know, some of the realities of the biasness of how we move right. that, you know, impacts, um, you know, the health of, of people that look like us. And, you know, clinically and professionally as a pharmacist, I grew up in the HIV space. And I grew up in the times where new medications were coming out that had horrible side effects. Patients were taking cocktails, like 12 pills a day wow. to control their HIV, um, you know, where... I, if I look at a patient and say, hey, why aren't you taking your pills? I really had to say, hmm, does this patient have housing? You know, mm -hmm. do they even have transportation to come to the doctor's office or to pick up their medicine from, you know, the, the pharmacy? What are these other barriers that are spilling over into what I'm seeing from a medication adherence or even from a outcomes, you know, positive health outcomes from them that maybe we can help address to make them better. And so I pride myself that I became a better pharmacist because I became a social worker. The more that I, you know, identified gaps and provided resources to help there, the better patients were when it came to their health. So I was a champion on that side. But it's interestingly enough, when I was going through my own journey, I kind of got stripped away of some mm. of that champion strength that I had as a clinician. So when I finally um, had the primary care appointment, not seeing my, my regular doctor, but someone in her practice, I can remember she was touching me and she was like, mm, I don't think it's anything, but because you have a private insurance, she named the insurance, I won't name it on this <laughs> conversation, <laughs> but because you have that insurance, I'm going to go ahead and send you for a mammogram. Mm. And so but again, what if you didn't have that insurance? What then if what? Ramona had Medicaid? What if right. Ramona had Medicare or you know government payer insurance? Um, and and I and I get it somewhat because you know clinically the guidelines tell us if a woman is under the age of forty, you go this route, right? Mm. Which would mean mammogram would not be part of my next steps because I didn't have a family history, I didn't have any of the. Um, identifiable risk factors that we associate with breast cancer. But what we're seeing is that for black and brown women, we're having breast cancer without that connections, without right. those, you know, that, that lineage or um, genetic perspective. We're having it younger. We're having it more aggressively. Because going back to when you asked, what did I know about breast cancer? To be honest with you, I always thought it was white women. Because okay. those commercials, those billboards with the pink ribbons, it was all menopausal white women. Right. You know, that was some upper echelon stuff. Ramona from, you know, Park You Manor. didn't see yourself in it. Right. Mm -mm, that wasn't me. So 30 years later, you know, when I'm going through this diagnostic journey or what have you, it, it still was kind of like foreign to me. Um, but thank goodness I had good insurance. Yay. Right. Because when I got that mammogram, of course, it prompted next steps for an ultrasound um, to get a better imaging of the lump because it was more than one that was seen on the mammogram. And um, that led to a biopsy where they actually took a needle mm -hmm. and aspirated some of the fluid from the, the, um, the lumps to see if they had cancer cells. And of course, they did. Mm. But again, what if I had stopped advocating for yourself? Yeah. Or what if that doctor would have denied me access to that mammogram? If I'd had a different insurance. Right. Yeah. 
which I'm sure happens a lot. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness, you know, the state of Illinois, I, I'm thankful that we have great leaders who understand that this is happening because my story is not um, uncommon. I hear a lot of women who go through that. I had to push to be heard. I had to push to be diagnosed. Um, so now, you know, women have access to mammograms. Um because of some of the, the legislator that's been passed in the state and some of the big uh, advocacy groups who've been pushing for that. But if we go across the border, th- that may not be the same for someone who lives in Wisconsin or someone who lives in Indiana. Um, so we have to give thanks for you know the legislator that we were able to pass here for women to have access to these screening modalities. Um, because sometimes, more often than not, when women go to have mammograms, it's not going to be positive for cancer. Um, you know, again, women of color, we have denser, more fibrocystic breasts. Mm. So sometimes you'll have a lump and it'll be benign or non-cancerous. Um, so that's it's very common. And so it makes me think, you know, sometimes is the issue of why we restrict mammograms? Is it because that so many of them are not cancer? And you think about the costs associated with having a mammogram. Versus health just system. prevention. Right. But it's still like you're still catching women who are walking around with cancer in their body, even though they may be on the, the lesser side of the percentage breakdown of, you know, what are the outcomes from these mammograms that we're giving. Um, so again, more of a, of a systems issue, but when I think about, you know, the costs, I'm like, maybe that's what the driver is of why, you know, we say 40 is the age, you know, or you got to have five out of these seven things before we can even allow you to get a mammogram screening. So again, kudos to our state right. for looking at it from a different perspective, not the monetary perspective. Definitely. Mm-hmm. It's like, Life or money? Mm-hmm. Which one weighs more? Which one? Which mm. one? So after you pushed for mm-hmm. the mammogram, got the results back that you did have breast cancer, what occurred next? Yeah. So even getting those results was weird. Um, so I remember my mom with, went with me for the mammogram and the ultrasound and the biopsy. And we were kind of just like, okay, what's happening? Um, and interestingly enough, I always say that the... The influence of media, the influence of celebrities. So at that time, Angelina Jolie was going through her um, journey. She wasn't ever diagnosed with cancer, but I think either her mom or her sister, Mm. someone had it. And she was known to have carried this um, genetic trait that we know is associated with cancer or breast cancer, um, the BRCA gene. And so she elected to have a double mastectomy prophylactically. I remember that. Remember that, right? Yes. All over TV, again. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a scientist. I'm a clinician. <laughs> I went to school, right? But what am I driving? You know, what am I making my decisions based off of? Uh, a celebrity. And she ain't even black. <laughs> but anywho. Um, but I remember her journey um, and, you know, how she went through the double mastectomy. I think she may have had a hysterectomy, too. Um, just, again, to reduce her risk. So when I got that phone call, that my results from my uh, biopsy was indeed cancer because they'll ask you like, okay, you want a phone call? You want to come in? I'm like, I ain't taking no time off of work. So you're going to call me. And so I remember getting it one night. I had just gotten back in from work, picked up the kids from school, was trying to make dinner, um, was trying to do something other than chicken nuggets, right? For dinner. Trying to be a real <laughs> I mean, that's real. <laughs> and I got that call and I remember going back to my bedroom so I could talk in, in private so the kids wouldn't hear and uh, the doctor's like, yeah, you know, it looks like it's stage uh, one. It could be stage two. We probably won't find out. So we go in and do some surgery. But, you know, I do want to let you know that you, it did come back positive for cancer. So how are you feeling? And I was like, well, am I going to die? And he's like, no. I was like, okay, we're cool. I was like, 
you know, am I going to get some new boobs? And he was like, yeah. I was like, okay, fine. What's the next step? <laughs> so that was how I took it. And, and I'm so horrible because I always, I'm the one that makes a joke when stuff ain't funny. Mm. And that's my coping mechanism. Comic relief. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so real, instead of really dealing with the diagnosis, I think I laughed a lot. Um, I probably drank too much kettle wine, but that was what got me through. <laughs> now that I can look back years later, I was like, yeah, you know, I was laughing. This stuff wasn't even funny, but it helped me at the time. Right. Right. Because there was so much else going on. So. So, yeah, I elected to have um, the double mastectomy, even though the cancer was in one breast. Um, so I can get my new implants. Right. Because, you know, I'm out here in the market now. I got to find <laughs> husband number two. Right. <laughs> Still and you always want it, you know. And I always want it. Right. <laughs> And that's, that's going to be another piece of the story later. But, um, yeah, and so we decided what my chemo regimen was going to be, um, you know, whether or not I needed radiation. So we're going into the Christmas season at this point. And so I'm just trying to, you know, keep a straight face with the kids because, again, you know, broken home now. You know, daddy going to come over afterwards and, you know, all this stuff. Um, so I elected to have my... Um, double mastectomy and start my chemo and stuff February of that next year. So that will be 2014. And, uh, you know, felt good about it. You know, at work, I knew I was going to take, you know, maybe 12 weeks off and I, you know, could still be a, a badass, you know, professionally because that 12 weeks wasn't going to hurt me, you know, and all that good stuff. Um, but interestingly enough, my employer at the time, they switched our health care benefits the year of 2014. So traditionally, we would get um, every January, every start of a new calendar year, we would get all of our sick days, our vacation days mm -hmm. just dropped into the system. And of course, 2014, they moved to a PTO or an accrual system mm -hmm. where you get a certain number of days per pay period, per, per month, what have you. So as I exited 2013, that year, I had essentially tapped out all of my days going back and forth with diagnostic for this or maybe taking off days for the kids once somebody had an ear infection or, you know, oh, that yeah. type of stuff. So I, I moved into 2014 with no cushion and it gave me pause because, you know, again, going through a divorce, I had moved into Hyde Park into, you know, a space that I could afford, but I was stretching it, you know, because I, you know, when you break up a, a relationship you know you got like I'm I'm better without you you know all that stuff so I'm like put up the front right not living beyond my means but living close to you know <laughs> that edge um, so I was thinking about okay well, well I got this money over here and if I don't get paid and so and so but all that factored in as I was prepping for you know my cancer surgery and, and treatment for February um, and so overall, the, the double mastectomy surgery went fine. Um, when you have a mastectomy, if you choose to get reconstructive surgery, what they do is um, with the mastectomy, they take out all the tissue mm. that is breast tissue. Um, some women can have lumpectomies if their cancer is small and isolated enough where they essentially just carve a piece of tissue out of your breast. And so you may have like, you know, just again, a lump removed, which is right. why it's a lumpectomy. But because my cancer was in multiple spots, it meant having a mastectomy where you're removing all the inner tissue. Right. Um, and so I elected to have that done on the right side, even though there was no cancer. But because I was young, there was a greater risk of recurrence. And so you reduce that risk if you just go ahead and scrape out, you know, the tissue that remains. And so interestingly enough, when I was prepping for surgery, um, because again, guys, I didn't have any boobs. <laughs> so one of my uh, cancer tumors or lumps or whatever was very close to the nipple on my mm -hmm. left side and so they were like your nipple has to go and I'm like damn I ain't gonna have no nipple okay but they was like <laughs> they were 
like, we could tattoo you one, right? So we could tattoo oh, wow. an areola. We could take a flap of skin and give you, you know, a reconstructed nipple. Okay, fine. Okay, fancy. So this side, remember, the right side didn't have any cancer. So they're like, well, we're going to take this nipple. And like, no, why can't I keep my nipple? Right. Wow. So I actually had to fight with the surgeon about keeping my nipple. <laughs> What a conversation. What a conversation. <laughs> but no, but, but this is the reality of like, I should be dealing about, I should be thinking about cancer. I should be thinking about, you know, right. whether I'm going to be able to survive and, you know, what are my kids? Is, is my will done and all that? And I got, you know, argue about saving my nipple. So I won that fight. I still got my nipple here. But the fact that that was part of the journey. Right. Like, and along this journey, who was supporting you? <laughs> so I have to give thanks to my mom. She was mm -hmm. definitely there. That's my ride or die. Um, and, and really my kids. And, and sometimes I have shame in, um, when, I, when I talk about the role they played in this mm -hmm. because I had shame that I was going through a divorce and then, um, you know, the shame of some of the financial stuff that happened because of, you know, not having good benefits, not having enough of a nest egg, but the shame, too, of them being strong for me. Um, you know, even in a recovery period. So, so when I went through the surgery, you know, they scrape everything out, but they put these expanders. So it's kind of like a balloon, if you can imagine a balloon with, with, with a hard plastic back. They insert that into your breast. And then slowly, like every week, they'll pump air mm -hmm. so that, you know, they inflate you back to whatever your normal size was or, you know, your desired size <laughs> if you can't get there. Um, but and it's not done all at once because there is a risk of having necrosis or skin tissue death mm. if they do too much too soon. So, you know, imagine having these balloons, but also with the balloons, there are drains because when they remove all the tissue, there's like lymphatic uh, fluid and all the stuff that comes out of your your breast, the remaining uh, from the surgery. And so. A tube, you know, coming out from the top, a tube coming out from the bottom on both mm. sides, and they're all collected in a drainage bulb that you have to, it's kind of like, um, you know, when the blood pressure cuff when you have yeah. to, you see the doctor squeeze it. So that's your collection bulb, and it has to be drained a couple times a day with all the fluid and blood that's running from your mm. scars as you're healing. And so, again, I'm the clinician, I'm the adult, I could not drain my bulbs, I could not look at the stuff that was coming out of my body, the, the excrements mm -hmm. or whatever. So my kids, but particularly my son, who was eight at the time, he was draining my bulbs. Wow. And so the fact that here I am, I'm a punk, right? <laughs> and I'm relying no, on my kids. you just needed support. I know, I know. <laughs> but I went to school. I shouldn't be squeamish when it comes to stuff like that. But I was. And so, yeah, my kids really stood up. And so, you know, that's one example of, you know, him draining my bulbs. And I'm like, darn, like. I have guilt for that. I'm thankful mm. that he stood up and he was a man at the age of eight to drain my bulbs. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but hopefully it's, it's taught them resilience in, in, in that space. But they were definitely my core um, supporters, but also my, my network, my sister girl network. Um, you know, folks who came through with food, folks who came through, you know, to give me a laugh, take me outside. It definitely does take a village when you know we're going through journeys like this just like yeah. it takes a village for you know raising our kids as well too so I'm thankful um, and all the the ancillary folks you know out there as well too so I can't say that I was in this fight alone but at the end of the day it was very still very much so isolating mm. what you made know? it isolating for you I th if I think about it now you know years removed it was the shame that mm. came with um, you know so much of the the outer parts of the cancer um, that you know I, I 
didn't feel good disclosing to folks that, you know, I didn't have any food in the house for the kids because, you know, I'm a pharmacist. I make good money um, in in. Could it have been that I should have planned better? Um, you know, were there some things I could have done differently? Was I living too close to my means, above my means? Um, so again, all the fear of the collapse of um, things that happened secondary to the cancer, mm-hmm. I think kind of made me go into like this little hole to kind of, you know, not share and not be truthful. Um, and that's why now I love having these conversations because I, I want to, break women from the chains of of that yeah of suffering and silence Mm of uh feeling as though we need to maintain the face Mm -hmm. maintain the smile right behind the confidence smile it's like no if you really struggling let's figure out how to help you and ramona your story is so impactful (laughs) (laughs) i remember us talking prior to this and Mm -hmm. i was like oh i can't wait to talk to her (laughs) of what is behind